Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Oh, thank you so much, Jan. I I can just echo that back again. Uh, I mean, the fact that today it worked out so that on publication day we could do this event uh, that was tremendous. But the fact that I'm doing it here with the national committee uh, it couldn't be more appropriate. Because as you said, for you know, 2011 uh, is when I started with PIP. Um, this book I, I remember very vividly. For those of you who have been in Shanghai, it was at the uh, the Shujiahui Library. Um, when I had this, I, I had this idea for a book um, that might be focused on this day at the end of the races, and so I went to Xu Jiahui to do some research, and I remember very vividly coming out of, there was a moment sitting there, and I said, you know what, this is going to work. Now, word to the wise, it was the wrong day, um, because I was, I was basing that on some information that I had about when the races ended, and it was incorrect. So I started to look, I, I realized I could do this. But I spent about a week working on the wrong day, and then I, I figured it out. And uh, and as you'll hear, I hope today it was it was a it was a fortuitous change. Um, so for the time that I've been with the National Committee, uh, it has really mapped on to the time I've been working on this book. And as and as you said, those uh, congressional delegations have been staff delegations have been really valuable, not just for me to get to China and to share uh, what I know and and what I uh, what I observe. Um, but on the last trip uh, that Jess Bissett uh, led, um, we actually got to go into what is the now the old race club building. Uh, and in fact, you will see it in some of the slides. So um, it just remains for me to say thank you really so much. And let me, and let me get started. I thought what I would do first um, is show a short video clip. And I'm going to read um, a short passage from the book. Um, so just to set up the scene, this is on November 12th of 1941, or about halfway through the day. Um, so this is beginning a race called the Jockey Cup, and the Jockey Cup is going to be followed by the champion stakes, which will come up in just a minute. But here we go, and here I go. The last race before the champion stakes was the Jockey Cup, a tradition at the club dating back to at least the 1860s. By the 20th century, the Jockey Cup served mainly to give those in attendance a chance to catch their breath and study the racing form one last time before placing their bets for the main event. The owners running in the champions could check on their horses before they headed to the parade ring or saddling area and then to the starting gate. Trainers could use this moment to inspect their charges for signs of injury. And with non-winning jockeys piloting this race, Charlie Encarnasau, Alex Stryker, and the other riders who had been in constant motion since before dawn could briefly rest assessing their mount's mood and fine-tuning their race strategy. Standing at the rail, C.S. Mao could revel in the greatest racing day of the year and maybe reflect on the journey that had brought him here. Decades earlier, he had been destitute, fired from his job at a leather factory for stealing, homeless and sleeping under a shed at the Shanghai docks. He was working odd jobs just to survive when he met men who eventually enabled him to join Du Yuesheng's Green Gang. And for years now, he had been one of Shanghai's most powerful men. Nate Swang, Ying Tang, and Dayu Dun didn't own or ride horses at the club, but they could bet on them, and bets would close at post time when the race would begin. The moment to shut out war and inflation and all the worries of daily life in 1941 Shanghai. Wang had been harassed by police and disenfranchised by his employer. Tang had been disappointed by marriage and by Broadway. Dun had spent his career's greatest achievement, had seen his career's greatest achievement bombed and burned. All three had spent a decade or more in Shanghai, building bridges between foreigners and Chinese, 
so that they could translate one another's languages, play one another's games, design one another's buildings, and learn how to be what the other wanted. With war, it had all come crashing down. Their country was all but lost. The Britain they had so admired and emulated was on the verge of extinction too. America might offer opportunity, but it seemed unable to commit itself. And of course, there were horses. Diminutive ponies dressed up and trained to go as fast as they could for a mile and a quarter. Hindhead didn't know that he had a chance to be just the sixth horse since 1869 to win three champions in a row. Nor did Clooney House realize that he had been favored twice to return to the winner's circle, only to come up short both times, disappointing thousands of backers. Phantom could help his owner get over his heartbreak. White Knight and Magic Circle had an opportunity to return to the glory they had once known as champions. None of these animals knew the opportunities they faced, though surely they sensed the tension in the moment as saddles, riders, and the hopes of 20,000 people were heaped onto their broad shoulders and short, shaggy legs. So I say that was just a taste of what was going on in uh, the race club on November 12th of 1941. I thought what I would do today, and I'm going to share my screen once again um, so that I can show you sorry, uh, so that I can show you kind of how the book works. Um, and so the original title for the, which uh, Jeff Watt's book, is he, he thought the title should be A Day at the Races. Um, the, the Marx Brothers got that one first. Um, but what I do want to show here, the film clip you just saw. Um, so the day at the through is November 12th of 19th. So I'm going to show this map right here. If you look at this map, you can see right there, this green oval is the... You'll see this other kind of echo. That was the previous site of the race club. It existed there for a few years before it moved out. And the first site of the races uh, was a little bit closer to the river. But today, uh, I want to focus on what went on this one day in three different sites. So one of the sites is the race club right here. The other site is going to be at the Hardoon Gardens. It's going to be Liza Hardoon's funeral. That's just a little bit off the edge or right at the edge of the map right there where I've got the cursor. And then the third event, which we're going to start, uh, which will happen for earliest in the day, uh, was the celebration of Sun Yat-sen's birthday, which is just off to the north. It's just off the map, off, off the map up here. So those are the three sites we're going to begin with. There's a little bigger view of Shanghai, just to give you a bigger a sense of what's going on. And let's begin at dawn. So at dawn, people are going to start gathering at the race club. So these are some uh, programs of the Shanghai Race Club from 1941. Uh, and this, some of you may recognize, actually, I'm sure many of you recognize. So this is still in the center of Shanghai. Um, that's the race club building uh, with its tower, which was called Big Birdie, named after one of the um, club secretaries. Um, and then you can see the racetrack in front of it. The racetrack, of course, is gone, um, now replaced by People's Square and People's Park. Uh, the race club building, though, it's still there and was just recently reopened as a Museum of Shanghai History, and that was the building I was telling uh, Jan just a couple minutes ago that we were with with the congressional staff delegation a couple of, well, now over a year ago. Who was there? So these are three of the principals in the story. Let me show you these three. So the one in the middle is Cornell Franklin. Cornell Franklin is a Mississippi judge. Um, he had a couple of different distinctions. He was the unofficial head of the American community in Shanghai. Um, he was a judge. He was the, a federal circuit judge in Hawaii before it became a state. Um, and he also had the misfortune of losing his wife to William Faulkner. Um, he had come from Mississippi and uh, Faulk, um, Faulkner and his wife and Cornell Franklin's wife had known each other as teenagers. And eventually she decided she preferred, she preferred that relationship to this one. She left Shanghai and went back to Mississippi. The other two people who are in here are Arthur Henchman, who's there. Um, Arthur Henchman, who everybody called Hench, 
he was in charge of HSBC. And if you know um, Shanghai and the Bund, um, you'll recognize that down, down on the river, you see the big dome uh, next uh, overlooking the river. That's the, HSB, oh, the old HSBC building. And he was the general manager of, of HSBC in Shanghai. And then the third person is over here. Right, this is Bob Aitkenhead. Aitkenhead is a Scot. He's a real a Scottish engineer, and he these were the three owners of kind of the three principal horses. So let me move ahead, and off to back to our map. So the thing I want to point out this time at the map is to remember it's 1941. Now, starting in 1937, um, Shanghai had become had entered into what's called the the Lone Island Period, a Lonely Island Period. Um, this is because while Japan and China are at war. United States is not at war with anyone in November of 1941, and the British aren't at war with the Japanese. So therefore, the, these, um, these international settlement, which is functioning basically as a colony, though it's not technically a colony, it's governed by Chinese, or sorry, by American and British businessmen for the most part, um, it's acting as a colony and it's formally neutral. So this is the space where the uh, where the race club is going on, and it's part of why the races have such resonance is because the race club at the center of this area, which is itself isolated amid the war that's now surrounded all of uh, all of China except for um, this tiny coastal enclave. Um, where I'm going to take you now, though, is up north to Jiangwan, and this is going on at 10 o'clock in the morning. So at 10 o'clock in the morning, they go out to Jiangwan, which is the site of another racetrack. There are three racetracks in China, in uh, Shanghai. Two of them were, were operated by Chinese, and this is what was left of one of them in 1941. It had been destroyed by the occupation of the, of the Japanese. This is the, uh, what's left of the grandstand at Jiangwan. And Jiangwan was meant to be the new Chinese center of the city. So these are the city plans uh, for what's going on in Jiangwan. If you go to Shanghai today, this is the area north. It's up near uh, Fudan University today. And this was meant to be the center of a new Chinese-governed Shanghai that would be out from, under of, out from under the colonialism and imperialism of the foreigners. And it was designed to, as you can see, have a more traditionally Chinese feel than what you saw down in the Bund. It was designed for the most part by this man, whose name is Dong Dayo, um, or Dayu Dun uh, in, in English. Um, we'll see, he was one of the people who was at the racetrack, but he had earlier designed the, um, uh, designed the Jiangwan Municipal Center. And as I mentioned in the reading, he had seen his handiwork bombed and burned. There you can see some of the wreckage of what he had had there. There it is pockmarked by shells. And there's a statue of Sun Yat-sen that's been toppled by Japanese troops. So how does this connect to November 12th of 1941? Well, November 12th uh, is Sun Yat-sen's birthday. So this makes for a really awkward celebration because formally, um, Shanghai, the parts of Shanghai that are controlled by the Chinese, which are actually controlled by the Japanese, but they're Chinese collaborators that are led by the government of Wang Jingwei. But they've decided that they're trying to claim themselves as the heirs of Sun Yat-sen. And so for the first time since 1937, they've given the permission to celebrate Sun Yat-sen's birthday. So there's a celebration starting at 10 a.m., um, which includes two or 3,000 people. It's about a tenth the size that it had been before the Japanese occupation, but you still have a crowd of about 3,000 people, two or 3,000 people um, that are there in Jiangwan on the morning of November 12th, 1941. So while henchmen and Aitkenhead and all of those uh, people are getting their horses ready, you have 3,000 people celebrating Sun Yat-sen's birthday just across town. And now let me go back to the map. So now I'm gonna move from the north up here back to the racetrack. 
So the, day, the day's races get underway. Um, these are three pictures from the North China Herald or the North China Daily News. Um, and you start to see some of the people who are doing races. I mentioned C.S. Mao. Um, C.S. Mao, who was, uh, worked from the Green Gang, this is him here. He was a horse owner. Um, Tony Liang is in the middle. He's another uh, Chinese horse owner. And then this is Leslie Hutton, who's a British lawyer. Um, these are all people who are running races at the racetrack, um, gathering in the morning, not for the champion stakes, but getting back together. And in the book, what I try to do is to bring everyone into the scene so you can start to see these, the contrast between these different settings. You've got, the again, the celebration in the north. You've got the races being run in, uh, in the international settlement. You've got the looking forward to the big event, which is Champions Day. Um, two other racers who you see here. So this... Uh, picture, you've got Vera McBain and Billy Liddell, two of the more famous uh, female owners at the track, and then Gussie White, um, who plays a major role as well. Lots more to say about them, but um, I want to make sure we get to some questions, so I'm going to move forward. So if we go back to the map, so now we're back to the race, and now let's go west a little bit, out to the Hardoon Garden. So this is Liza Hardoon, or Luo Jialing. Um, Liza Hardoon um, is half French, half Chinese. Um, so she was born to a French father and a Chinese mother, um, was raised speaking Shanghainese, didn't learn Mandarin until she was um, in, her, uh, in her 30s or 40s. Um, and she comes into prominence because she's married to Silas Hardoon, who you can see in this picture here. And because of her marriage to Silas Hardoon, who is one of the wealthiest of the Baghdadi Jewish businessmen in Harbin, uh, sorry, Harbin, in Shanghai, um, she... Um, assumes prominence as many people consider her to be the wealthiest woman in Asia. Um, at, she, when she's widowed, she's widowed in 1931, and she passes away in October of 1941, um, so about a month before Champions Day. Now, you would expect that, because she was, there was some rumor as to whether or not she had converted to Judaism. Obviously, if she were converted to Judaism, she would have been buried right away. There was a lot of conflict between Jewish and Buddhist elements in the Hardoon Gardens, and so her funeral eventually was set, for November 12th, 1941. And at the very beginning of the book, I talk about um, how uh, Arthur Henchman would have made his way from his home down Bubbling Well Road to get to the racetrack. And he would have had to go by enhanced security, um, police with machine guns, and also uh, barricades who were maintaining security for the, for the Liza Hardoon funeral. Um, this is a, a gate set up at the, at the entrance to Hardoon Gardens. There's a scene from the funeral. The quality is not terrific. These are taken from uh, the North China Daily News. So that's around noon is when the Hardoon funeral happens. I'm now going to keep going back to yet another site. So now go back to the racetrack, which is at the Oval. And if we go down toward the pink area there at the bottom of the screen, let's go to the movies for just a second. Because one other thing that happened on November 12, 1941 is at the Cafe Cinema. So if you've been to Shanghai in the past few years, you'll kind of recognize that because it's been restored. So it looks not unlike uh, how it appears in that picture. Um, but opening day from, for um, in the Cafe Cinema that day was a movie called Murder Over New York, which is the latest Charlie Chan movie. Um, which raises all sorts of interesting questions about the use of yellow face, about the depiction of Asian Americans. Um, you've got Sidney Toller playing Charlie Chan in the center um, of the movie. Um, and the movie industry in Shanghai is something that goes far beyond the stereotypes of Charlie Chan. It's something I, I spend a chapter talking about in the book, because you've got Chinese movies, you've got Hollywood movies. Um, movies become a big enterprise in Shanghai, especially because it's the one part of China that is not under Japanese occupation. 
This is a page from the North China Daily News. You can see the ad for the Champions Day races um, right above the ad for murder over New York and Sidney Toller in his, uh, in his offensive yellow face makeup. So that starts at three o'clock, the first showing of, of, uh, of murder over New York. And now if I can go back to the races, so back to the map and you see the green oval, that's where we're headed now. And now it's time for the main event for Champions Day. This is Ying Tang. Um, Ying Tang um, was one of the most um, highest profile socialites in Shanghai. Um, and she played the lead role in a play called Lady Precious Stream, um, which got attention all over the world. And in fact, got her invited to go to Broadway to perform it, although that fell apart for reasons that are uh, a little bit controversial and hard to figure out for sure. Um, but at four o'clock is when the last Champions Day begins. And here's a shot. This may actually be the Champions Day. It's, I know it's from the fall of 1941, but I don't know specifically. This is a better picture. It's not from the right time. Um, but then you can see a bit of the grandstand. That grandstand has been torn down, although the rest of the building is still there. And the rest of these pictures are from the day itself, from, from November 12th, 1941. Um, I love this picture with the Sikh turban in the, in the foreground, because it just gives you a, a little more sense of the, of the international flavor of Shanghai. And this is the, 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 more, the more white picture as opposed to the sepia picture. Um, that's the owner's enclosure um, of the people um, watching, watching their horses run in the champions. And this is another shot of the crowd at Champions Day, as is this one. That's, a, that's the same picture you saw from the news here, but enlarged. So I think you can just kind of lose yourself in the faces that are there and the mixture of, of that's the mixture of faces that you see. That's the start and the finish of the Autumn Champions, so I guess we shouldn't, I don't want to have any spoilers, so I'm not going to tell you which horse is in front, um, but some of you may already know. Uh, and then the place that I want to end, and, and I make sure I want to leave time, because we're at 422 already, I want to make sure I leave a lot of time for questions and to talk with Jan, but I guess I'm going to end with just this picture. Um, so when I took the uh, congressional staff delegation to the Shanghai History Museum, get up to the third or fourth floor, I can't remember which it is, um, but there is a, a little section on HSBC, so the Hong Kong and Shanghai Banking Corporation. Um, and I realized as I looked at it, because it's got a label, this is the manager's desk, but that's Henchman's desk. Um, so Arthur Henchman, who's the, the character who opens the book um, and who spends a lot of the book trying to uh, make his way in Shanghai and, and claim his title as champion, that that was his desk. So when I, you know, he wrote telegrams and, and letters about the invading Japanese and about how the bank was going to survive, um, that's where he wrote it. And so I just found the fact that this had been taken from the Bund down to the museum um, was just something remarkable to see. And maybe a few of you listening to me will remember, remember when I was pointing that out there. Um, but that's just the inside of the museum. A little meta moment because there's now a model of the of the museum inside the museum, um, so that can just give you a little better sense of what the entire. It's, it's a bizarre. It's got kind of the Cheesecake Factory architecture award going on. There's about 15 different arch architectural styles taking place all at once, and that's what it looks for reals. So with that, I guess I can leave that up there as something to look at, and um, I think I'll stop here and turn it over to to Jan and to all of you to to spend some time asking questions since you've taken time out of your day to come to come be here. So thank you so much. And I'm going to stop sharing. Sorry. There we go. <laughs> I was muting myself just because I didn't want any. It wouldn't be a Zoom meeting if somebody weren't inadvertently <laughs> muted. Of course, of course. It shouldn't be me, though. But um, so I had started off by thanking you very much, Jay. It's um, it's it's a wonderful 
to hear you tell the story because that's one of the reasons I enjoy reading not just this book of yours, but all the other two books of yours that I've enjoyed um, very much as well, is because you have such an easy style in terms of your writing and you, unlike some history books where you're just falling asleep over every page, that's not the case here because you keep your readers very engaged by your very relaxed, easy prose and and for me, the main thing is that you tell a story, and you uh, certainly do in this book. You tell lots of different stories. But I, I want to start, Jay, with something that really resonated very much with me in reading the book, because I didn't start to read it until about a week and a half ago, because I wanted it to be fresh in my mind. And as you know, over the last two weeks or so in the United States, we've been very wrapped up in something that should have been wrapped up a long, long time ago. And that is thinking about racism and, and social justice. And uh, you, you mentioned before when you were showing the last few pictures to that you can become engrossed in the mixture of faces. And that's certainly true. And in that mix, you see Western faces, Asian faces, lots of different um, people from different parts of Asia and different countries in Asia. and lots of um, racial classes and you see people who are in, in some of the pictures you see people very dressed up and very elegant and clearly from some of the upper classes in Shanghai and then you can also see a lot of people who are clearly working class people and so I'd like you to talk about the sort of because you didn't write it at a time that we were all focusing on it but it's just inevitable when you're talking about a, country, a city that is basically run or portions of it are run by foreigners and it's a very colonial place, not just Western foreigners, but Asian foreigners, Asian colonialists once the Japanese took over. So can you talk, spend a little time talking about that, the whole mixture of ethnicities in China, classes, I'm sorry, in Shanghai, various classes in Shanghai, et cetera. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, something that I was very, tried to be sensitive to in this story at the very start was that um, there's, there's a risk with, with telling the story of, of kind of colonial nostalgia. Um, there, there's a real risk of trying to talk about this, like, oh, look how, look how nice the racetrack was and look how exciting this was and it, you know, orientalizing of, of the past. Um, and, I try to look that as a way of, of attracting attention from people um, who might not otherwise be engaged in it and then using it as an opportunity to talk about some of the things that were going on. And I was, I've been very pleased by a couple of the reviews I've read that, that picked up on the attention that I gave to questions about, about racism and, and colonialism in Shanghai. Um, I, think, I think that the racetrack is a really a, a puzzle. It's an enigma because the so the the Shanghai Race Club was a racist institution. It excluded Chinese. You could not be a Chinese member of the Shanghai Race Club. That was true all the way until it ceased to exist. However, if you looked at the pictures that I was showing, there were not only a lot of Chinese in attendance, but there were Chinese owners of horses. Um, and the reason for that was that the Shanghai uh, the 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 other race clubs in Shanghai, there are two other horse tracks, they were able to keep their horses and enjoy what was called reciprocal membership. 
at the at the race club in in downtown in in the center of the city so the there was formal racism um that excluded that excluded chinese and that was never changed but the reality and the the visuals the pictures that you see is that there's a lot more integration going on in the club than than you would suggest than you would expect from that so it was it was a puzzle because on the one hand it was fiercely racist and it was just a, it was appalling how shanghai was segregated in a lot of ways on the other hand um, if you looked at the pictures in the film, you saw that there were Chinese, there were Westerners there, and it wasn't divided necessarily by class either. Um, you had a lot of very uh, cosmopolitan, multicultural Chinese who also had a prominent place at the race club, um, although, again, they were excluded from being members. So I, I mean, I struggle with this quite a bit. And at the end of the book, um, you know, I try to look at the ways that that Shanghai today is trying to kind of reclaim its place as a cosmopolitan multicultural city, but this time under the control of of Chinese. And that's something that is it's a really difficult nut to crack because for many people, Shanghai's heyday was a period when it was, if not colonial, at least semi-colonial or quasi-colonial. We talk about it in lots of different ways. Um, so I, I'm I'm both repulsed by the racism of the Shanghai track and also kind of drawn to the idea that I, I think we need to understand it a little more broadly. And if I can, I think this is going just slightly too far, but I'm going to, I'm going to try it anyway. I think there's something hopeful um, in what could be achieved by sort of recapturing some of the multicultural energy of Hong Kong, uh, sorry, of, of Hong Kong, of Shanghai. That's a, a slip in, in a lot of ways. I'm trying to recover some of that multicultural energy of Shanghai, but without the colonialism. Um, and that's something that I'm, um, I, I, I like to raise questions more than provide answers in, in what I do as an historian. And maybe that's a cop out, but that is what I, what I think is that I, I think it does raise some of those questions. So picking up on what you just said in terms of um, currently China trying to um, use Shanghai um, in sort of um, piggyback on what Shanghai had been. There are two questions, actually. I'll read both of them because they both sort of get to that point in terms of bringing Shanghai's history up to today. One of them is from an old uh, longtime National Committee friend, Charles Wong, who says, who asked, do you see the possibility of Shanghai replacing the role Hong Kong has been playing with regard to business relations and international trade and then also from um, an Ohio State PhD candidate, Shui uh, Fan, how do you think the 1940s golden age of Shanghai contributes to the city's current agenda of making itself a cultural metropolis? Mm. You know, un unfortunately, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of inconsistency, and so that makes it hard makes it easy to answer the question because you can always find something to support your point, but it makes it hard to answer it completely because there's always contradictory evidence. So we'll start with the first. You know, if I, I've talked about this a lot with, uh, with Parks Koble, who I'm sure is a historian uh, a lot of you know, um, and Parks had done a lot of work on Shanghai and, and uh, studied this for longer than I have. And he, he always pointed, when asked that question about Shanghai replacing Hong Kong, he always pointed to Hong Kong's huge advantage in terms of transparency and the rule of law. Um, and that made Hong, it was really gonna be very difficult for Hong Kong to be supplanted as long as Shanghai didn't have transparency and the rule of law, which regardless of how much had changed, there was still more of that in Hong Kong than there was in Shanghai. 
I think that's still true, but obviously events in Hong Kong have really raised questions not about whether Shanghai is able to ri rise to the level that Parks was talking about, but rather Hong Kong is starting to sink to the level that that Shanghai had been at. Um, so I'm I'm going to kind of defer that. Now I won't defer that question. I'll say yes. I think Shanghai has that opportunity, but largely I worry about it's because that Hong Kong is losing um, some of that, losing some of that, and so Shanghai may step into that breach, uh, and that's not an answer that that heartens me. I'm I'm sorry to say. Um, Okay, the other question was about the golden age. I put the golden age back slightly earlier, so maybe the 20s and the 30s. You know, that's where it's so, it's so contradictory. Yeah, that was Shanghai's golden age. There was all sorts of, I mean, there was jazz music and, and some ironic, ironic um, aspects of that was you had African-American musicians who couldn't play in the United States because of segregation laws. And they went to Shanghai to so where they could play, you know, in a mixed band, in a mixed race band, because they couldn't play it that in parts of, in in much of the United States in the in the teens and twenties. Um, so the teens, twenties, thirties—that is Shanghai's golden age. But it's also, a, you know, it's deep. It's really problematic to call it the golden age because a lot of Shanghai is segregated, um, and a lot of Shanghai is racist. Remember that even in the international settlement, um, that area that is governed for the most part by Americans and Britons. Um, 90, well over 90% of the population is Chinese. And so you had a lot of wealthy Chinese, but you had many more Chinese who were not at all wealthy, who were very working class or poor. Um, and I tried to describe, you mentioned food before, I, I spend a fair amount of time in the book trying to get at the food ways of these different groups, because I think that's a good way to kind of culturally uh, get at some of the things that are going on when you don't have traditional sources. Um, so uh, I think thinking about it as a golden age is problematic. However, to, I think, answer the, the, the question, I think that what the, what the Chinese Communist Party would like to do in terms of Shanghai is to try to hold on to a version of what Shanghai's past had been like, but put it into the terms that they want it to be. So a, a, a Shanghai that has this sort of I'm going to call it exotic, but it's kind of from, it's like reverse, oriental, reverse orientalism. It's kind of exotic aspect to it, but one that's not going to be controlled by foreigners. Like that's a really important thing to say. So um, I, whether it can work, I don't know. I mean, there's people, I don't think they were on the call, but there's a lot of people who, who we're mutual friends with who work in Shanghai and they're just despondent about the destruction of Shanghai's architectural uh, legacy. Um, and so much of valuable uh, architecture is being destroyed as it had been in places like Beijing, where you had places uh, like Chenmen, which was sort of, you know, torn down and then replaced with almost an exact duplicate, except kind of a more sterile version of it. I think there's a lot of worry about that. So um, that's, a, that's a very wordy way of saying, I don't know. I think it's a really challenge. There's a lot of opportunities there, but the challenges are immense. You just mentioned the despair and despondency of many Lao Shang Haren, or people who have known the city in a different time, or even up until fairly, you know, the last 20 years or so, who are very upset about tearing down of monuments. And that, that gets to another question from Radha Zama um, with the Chancellor Group. Uh, he's wondering if any of the historic sites and buildings in Shanghai have been preserved. I would... Between between trying to figure out what a university is going to do in the fall, um, and to um, and getting this book launched, I've I haven't kept completely current on some of the things that have been going on there. Um, 
I think the, the short answer to this is, is not really. Like some things are preserved. Um, so like the old race club is now the Shanghai History Museum. And so there's a lot of the built architect. Like if you go down to the Bund, you'll see a lot of those monuments. So in terms of the monuments, a lot of them are still preserved. But I can give other examples of, ho of whole neighborhoods out in the old French concession, which have just recently either been destroyed or marked for destruction. I can't remember where they were in the process. Um, one of the a very sad loss is the old Astor House Hotel. Um, oh, that's gone? It's still there, but it's been turned into a museum of money, as I were, a museum of stock market. It's been turned into a museum of the stock market, which is, which there's so many things to say. Um, but for those of you who don't know, the, the Astor House Hotel um, is right on the Bund, um, just, just across, kind of just off across the, the bridge from the main Bund. Um, and it was the oldest Western style hotel in China. Um, and there were pictures of Ulysses Grant and Charlie Chaplin and Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong who all stayed there at one point or another. And you could go in and you could stay there for you know, 30 or 40 or 50 bucks a night, not that long ago. And you might wind up in a room that was the size of a, a bowling alley, or you might wind up in a room that was the size of a, of a large closet or a New York City apartment. But you, um, uh, you, know, you never knew what you would get, and that's been yeah, closed as a hotel. Anyway, that's, that's small potatoes, but there have been whole blocks of areas um, and people like Tina Conagrantnam or Paul French, I mean, they would have the, the current state of those things. But I, I don't, overall, it's not, it's not a positive trend. That is sad. I, I once had stayed at the Astor House, and, and it's, I guess it's appropriate if it's turned into a museum, the stock exchange, because for several years it served mm -hmm. as Shanghai's main right. stock exchange. So um, a question from one of your fellow pippers, um, Maggie Lewis who says, having, served, having myself studied Liomang, word for hooligans, and organized crime, though mostly in Taiwan post-World War II, I'm curious if you could say a bit more about the role of gangs uh, slash organized crime, both in the races and more generally in Shanghai at the time. Because I guess she's right, we sometimes uh, associate racing and betting with gangsterism. Yeah. So was that the case in um, old Shanghai? Uh, yes, it was, um, but in, in an interesting way. So C.S. Mao, um, who I had a long time, a lot of trouble tracking him down because I assumed his surname was Mao, but in fact, his surname is Ma, um, so, which is good for a horse racing, right? Um, so um, so his, if you don't speak Chinese, so his name means Ma, his surname means horse. Um, but, uh, but he went by C.S. Mao in English. Um, he was a, a pretty prominent gangster in the, in the Green Gang. I mean, he was one of Du Yuesheng's top lieutenants. Um, now, he was not the only one. So there were a lot, of, a lot of people involved in organized crime who owned horses. Now, they couldn't own horses at the Shanghai Race Club because that was for whites only, right? But the, the International Recreation Club, which was just off in Jiangwan, near where the, those um, Sun Yat-sen celebrations were, that was a place that was financed largely by the Shanghai Race Club, in part, it has to be said, so they can maintain their, their policy of whites only at their own club, because this way the Chinese owners could own horses that was very, were very nearby. And in addition, the, the Chinese would run on Sundays, and the, the, the British didn't like to run on Sundays. Well, they didn't like to say they were running on Sundays, but there'd be huge traffic jams from the international settlement out to Jiangwan on, on Sundays. So you had a lot of people who were involved in organized crime who would own horses at these other tracks. However, when those tracks closed, and they closed in 1937, well, they closed off and on, but they closed for good in 1937, um, they, um, most of the gangsters 
um, if I can use that word, most of the organized crime figures left. They left Shanghai. Sooner or later, they left Shanghai. Many of them went to Hong Kong, um, but they fled Shanghai because they wanted to flee. The, I mean, some stayed during the war, but then as the war started to end, they, they realized that they um, were not going to they, they didn't they didn't like their prospects going forward the only one who the only one who stayed active in the races during the war uh was cs mao and he stayed even after um the communists took over the city and that did not go well for him he was he was executed for collaboration with the japanese um i should say and this is something that i didn't mention in my little in my presentation um so when i say it was the last the last Champions Day, I'm taking some liberties there because the, the races continued under the Japanese all through World War II. The last one, the last ad I found, which is in a Chinese newspaper, was for races in the first week of August, 1945. So they were continuing the races all through, all through the war under Japanese direction. Um, so yeah, there was underworld involvement in the races, but CS Mao is the only one who is really still active by the time they got to 1941. So picking up on your last comments about the fact that the races were still run during the Japanese occupation, war is going on around Shanghai, terrible things happening in, in Nanjing and mm -hmm. elsewhere. So I'm sort of, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how that happened and why it seemed, at least from reading your story and from a few other things that I've read about Shanghai in that period, that the Japanese were not as vicious or as um, authoritarian in Shanghai as they were in other places they occupied in China. Can you, do you, do you know why that is? Do you, you, meant, you talk a little bit about that in the book, yeah. but I'd like you to maybe explore that a little further here. Well, so first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, Shanghai suffered less than just about any other city under Japanese occupation during the war. Um, there wasn't a lot of damage. Um, and the reason for that at first was that the Japanese were interested in getting the British and the Americans to not fight in China. So they sort of wanted to demonstrate you can, so the Japanese were going to join the kind of imperialist club along with the, the British and the French and the Americans, and they were going to kind of enable, if, if again, uh, Shanghai's not a colony. There's a whole literature on, on, on how Shanghai is or is not a colony, but just stipulating to the fact that Shanghai is sort of like a colony, that Shanghai was going to be continued, was going to continue to function kind of the way it had functioned, but now under the Japanese. And so for the first few months of the occupation, even a lot of the British weren't, in, weren't interned. A lot of the allied um, nationals weren't interned. They, they continued, in fact, in 1940, into 1942, they continued to run some horses, um, much to the displeasure of British uh, military, who, um, who took great exception to the idea that there were British nationals who were, who were racing horses and watching horse races while their nation was in existential peril. Um, so, that happened up into 1942. I think even after that, um, the, the, Chi the Japanese saw Shanghai as an opportunity. Um, so once they had even reconciled themselves that it wasn't going to be, that they, weren't, they couldn't get the British and the Americans not to fight against them, but they still kind of had an idea that they would retain uh, Shanghai as, as an opportunity that if they could win when they won the war, um, to look at it optimistically from their point of view, when they won the war, they wanted Shanghai to be someplace that they could use to kind of establish and maintain their their position in, in China. Um, and so they interned all the, virtually all of the allied nationals 
um, starting in 1942, a number of them were repatriated. So the two key figures um, in two of the key figures in, in the book for me, so Cornell Franklin, the American from Mississippi, and, and Arthur Henchman, the manager of HSBC, they're both repatriated to the United States and, and Great Britain, uh, respectively, as part of a, a prisoner exchange. Okay. Um, we have a, a message from a friend, mutual friend, Tom Gold. Uh, who says, Jay, I see you strategically placed two excellent books, The Last Boat Out of Shanghai and Remembering Shanghai, along with his excellent book, Tom, that's, that's there as well, Champions Day, um, behind you. So he'd like you to talk, though, a little bit more about New Shanghai. Um, the last time he was yeah. there um, was about two years ago, and, and he's talking a little bit about the buildings. The old buildings look pretty decrepit and sealed off, and yeah. what's the effort to refurbish them. But also just sort of, and I'm interested in, and I'm not sure if Tom means the new Shanghai I think he means. I think he means Jiangwan, the, the Jiangwan, new Shanghai and Jiangwan, yeah. Ask, because what's going on in Jiangwan? So if those of you recall, Jiangwan is one of the three places that Jay features in his book of where things are happening on that day. So it's, it's because I asked Jay that very question in a call last night. I wasn't clear physically where John Wan was because I'd never seen any of these magnificent buildings that Dune had, had uh, yeah. done as his architecture. And I guess it's out in the Fudan area. Yes, it's out where Fudan University is now. Um, uh, Tom, I've not been to uh, I've not been to Jiang the last time I was in Shanghai was in December of, of twenty eighteen with the, the staff delegation. Um, I had plans to be there. I, I should have been there a week ago, um, but I'm but I'm not, and I don't have any imminent plans to get back. So I don't know. Last time I was in Jiangwan was a year or two before that, so it may have been twenty you know, it doesn't matter, but it's been four or five years. Uh, three or four years anyway, since I've been there. So la I have the same impression. Last I saw it was not in very good shape. There's some remarkable Art Deco buildings. So Tina Cunningham um, and Patrick Cranley, the folks who do Shanghai Art Deco and Historic Shanghai, they would be the experts. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them that question. So in the next event, when I get asked that, I'll be able to, I'll be able to give them a more current, current account. Okay. Um, we have a, a fellow writer, um, Audrey, and I've just lost my place, so I apologize. Uh, Audrey Bastian, yeah. Yes, Audrey Bastian. She wants to know uh, whether you had a favorite character in the book. And I must say, you have a lot of interesting characters. So I'm curious as to whether you pick favorites and which one. Yeah, I mean, so I started writing the book about, you know, with henchmen. Um, and in fact, uh, when my, my daughter, who, when I started writing this book, was like five years old, um, and she's finishing elementary school tomorrow, so that tells you something, is she's, um, she has a hobby horse named Henchman, because Henchman was such <laughs> a, important, and, and he went by Hench, and he's kind of colorful. Um, I don't think I identified with him, because I'm not a, I mean, I'm not a banker, and I'm not a captain of industry, and so um, I knew a lot about him, and he's interesting, but I don't, wouldn't say I identified with him. I think the person who I empathized with the most was probably um, Dong Dayo. Um, or Dayu Dun, um, who, um, who was the architect. He actually, he was born in China, if I remember that one smart piece, but he was educated in Rome um, and then did his, he studied at Tsinghua and then went to the University of Minnesota and he, he practiced in New York and, and then went back to China. I, I just found 
the sense of optimism and also style, like that picture of him in his, in his suit and his pencil mustache. I mean, um, he's a really interesting character. And the fact that he wanted to go and contribute to the, the reconstruction of China, um, I, I found him to be a, kind of a romantic figure. It also ends really badly for him. He's one of the, he's one of the few characters who stays in China after, uh, after the war and after the revolution. Um, and he winds up suffering in the Cultural Revolution um, quite a bit. So uh, I he was probably the character that I identified with the most. I wish I knew more about, I wish I could provide more flesh to his story, but um, just on the, the kind of biography that I have, he was the character I think I identified with the most. And how did you decide to, what made you want to write this book? And how did you decide to use the, you know, were you first interested in old Shanghai history or the 20s, 30s, 40s in Shanghai? Were you interested in horse racing? And if not, what gave you the idea of using that conceit of this day and the three different things that were happening throughout the city? So all three of those things happened kind of together. Um, so I've, like when I was in college, I was the sports editor at the, at the school paper. I've always enjoyed doing sports writing and kind of a, a wannabe sports writer in some way. So, so the idea of writing about sports was something that appealed to me, but that was kind of secondary. What was more primary is that kind of my, my role as an historian over the past couple decades now is um, writing about China and the West, but trying to do it from a more individual, from an individual perspective and not from sort of a state to state perspective. I'm not a diplomatic historian or, or, uh, or a grand strategist or an IR theorist or anything like that. So I'm really looking at how individuals um, interacted with either Chinese individuals interacted with Westerners or vice versa. And that was what happened in the Harbin book. Um, kind of the whole thing started with a basketball game. Um, that was really the kind of the beginning of my PhD dissertation was this basketball game in Harbin between the Russians and the Chinese. Um, and then when I wrote about this Buddhist monk, um, Tan Shu and the heart of Buddha, heart of China. So he was, again, from the other perspective, a Chinese um, who was founding these temples as kind of examples of Chinese identity that he was trying to build up against uh, Western colonialism in places like Qingdao and Harbin and Hong Kong. Um, so I'd been interested in that. And, you know, the, this is now the early, or was when I was starting to look at, think about this, it was the 90s, um, I guess not the early 90s, the late 90s and the early 2000s. And I'd been working in Harbin and working in Harbin is so hard. Um, and I was kind of looking for someplace a little easier to just to get access to, to things. Um, and then also, if you're doing stuff on China in the West, Shanghai is a natural place to, to look. Um, and so I started looking for a project and the idea of doing this one day really appealed to me. And so I told you at the outset how I started with the wrong day. So that was because I had information from this other book over my shoulder, which I think it's on the other shoulder now, but anyway, called China Races. Um, it was a book that was written, it's kind of the history of horse racing in China. And it talked about the last champions day, um, which was in May of 1941. And so that was why I went to Xu Jiahui and started looking at all the newspapers and collecting things. And I just started, you know, you can pick any day in history and make it significant if you want to. Um, some are more significant than others, but you can always kind of find stuff. So I decided the last champions, that would be enough of a, of a hook and let's see if I can make it work. But before I could really dig into May the 7th, I think it was, um, I discovered that November I kept looking at the newspaper and found that November 12th, it had all happened again. So it wasn't the last one at all. So then when I got to November 12th, I was able to start doing, um, it was Sun Yat-sen's birthday. So those things were going on. And then I saw Liza Hardoon's funeral happen to be going on at the same time. And when the book originally got 
proposed, you know, the original pitch for the book, it was the conceit was more, the conceit was more. So it was really the whole book was going to start at dawn. It was going to end at nightfall. And there was the whole book was going to be that one day. Um, it became too hard to try and backfill the story of how things got to be the way they were and stick to that structure. So that's why it starts off with like we begin at dawn in the day, then we kind of fill in a lot of the, the paths that get us there. Um, and then section three of the book is really just that one day, kind of like the presentation I did today. But it was uh, it, it emerged out of a lot of trends that were already that were already there in my, my thinking and work. Well, I, I think I, I'm glad you changed it a bit because I think the way you've done it, uh, weaving in the stories of the people who would have been at these three different places, or some of whom who were able to go to more than one of them because the times were different, and, and maybe catch the five o'clock Charlie Chan movie at the Cafe Theater. Um, but it, it does give one a sense of the different worlds that were coexisting in Shanghai at that time. And can you talk a little bit more? I, so clearly the racetrack was someplace where those three worlds might and could and did come together. Yeah. The theater, as you said, is another place where the movie theaters, uh, where they might come together. But were there other times when these worlds would coincide? Um, yeah, there were a couple. I mean, so uh, Taras Gresko wrote a book called Shanghai Grand, which came out, what, three or four years ago? Two, three, something like that, two or three years ago. Um, and he he talked about, he wrote in there some about, uh, he's about Emily Hahn and, and uh, Victor Sassoon. Um, and so the International Arts Theater, which I write about in, in Champions Day as well, there were a couple of these artistic spaces where you had Western and, and Chinese uh, people come together in different um, uh, different classes of people would come together there too because a lot of the patrons were wealthy um, but some of the the actors and the other participants were were not so much um, so that was one area where they would come together I wrote in here about this it, it translates horribly into English but the but the race club staff club um, and that was the group that was of, of Chinese who were dedicated to promoting cooperation between Chinese and Western culture and um, they had this fabulous Art Deco album, and they had competitions in, for instance, um, they would have Chinese opera and mahjong, but they'd also have billiards and um, pool, uh, sorry, billiards, and um, I'm picturing what the other, the other cards were that they had up there. Uh, I'm forgetting. But they had, had all these different kinds of elements that were meant to be Chinese and Western. You know, it, was, it was fairly superficial, and it was kind of at an elite level, um, but there were these attempts from from different elements to try and, and kind of bridge that gap. Um, we've got another question that um, relates to something I was going to ask you as well. It's from a former National Committee staff member, Kathleen Welsh. Uh, sorry, Kathleen Walsh. Um, she wants to know what the reception has been to Western authors' books on colonial era Shanghai. Um, is there an inch, um, and I, I assume you mean in China today, Kate and wants to know if there's an interest in Shanghai and other, in other parts of China, or is it particularly sensitive to research and discuss? And I, I was gonna ask you a somewhat similar question, is that I'm assuming that it would have been fairly easy. You said working researching in Harbin was tough, but not only is Shanghai an, an easy place to live, but it seems to me there've been a lot of memoirs that have been written, both by 
by Western people who lived in Shanghai and by Shanghainese themselves, including the one that my friend. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, so that's a that's a great question, Kate. Um, I think. Okay, I think there's. I think they're embedded in there was a couple of different things. So I think the most interesting question is not the one I'll answer first. So the first question is, is there interest? So yes, I mean, there's been interest in translating this book into Chinese. In fact, there's a mainland publisher that has, that has proposed publishing it. Um, I'm not counting any of those chickens until they've hatched because because of all the tensions and uh, the, how that relationship is going back and forth. But they're definitely interested by Chinese publishers uh, in in accounts of that sort of colonial old Shanghai, however you want to phrase it. Um, the interesting part of the, the really interesting part of the question, I think is about how other parts of China view Shanghai. And that's, a, that's I think a fascinating question. I'm not qualified to answer it because I've, I mean, I'm not Chinese and I've been focused on Shanghai for such a long time. Um, I do know, I've, I had a good friend um, and he was in China and he um, eventually married, well, at the time they weren't married, but he since married a Chinese woman who was from Beijing. And he really, and he, he was, he was a white American. So he, they moved to Shanghai, from Beijing to Shanghai. And he really liked Shanghai. He, just, he liked the built environment. It just felt really good. And, and they'd been there for a little while. And she was just like, Shanghai's okay. Like, I, but I, I don't like it. It doesn't, it doesn't, I don't like it. It doesn't feel like home to me. And I wonder if that's the case for a lot of Chinese Still, so I, I think that um, in Shanghai, I think Shanghai in, I mean, Chinese who are from Shanghai, I think they feel much, very much that it's home. But I, I wonder if other parts of China see Shanghai as a place that is very Chinese or if they see Shanghai as still being someplace that is um, influenced by its, its foreign past. I, I, I can speculate, but I don't know. Well, I think that has been the case in the past and also I think there was always a bit of superiority, sure. superiorness on the part of people from Shanghai. They were extraordinary. It was an extraordinarily cosmopolitan place. It was a really interesting, vibrant metropolis. It had lots of things going on at lots of different levels. And, and the Shanghainese are very proud of their city and their culture and their, their dialect and so I, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some it's a dynamic not unknown in this country, right? I mean, yes, the that, attitude toward true. the New York Speaking and the coast. Yes, to live in New York, very, very, very similar. Um, uh, so we've got a, a, a message from Bryce. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not going to not pronounce this right. Pele. It's Bryce. It's Pierre. Bryce okay. Pierre. Thank you, Bryce Peer. Bryce wants to know. I'm curious as to whether you and other historians reach, researching Chinese history have compared notes on your subject matter. The error about which one is writing, for example, affects the degree of ease in working with Chinese authorities, archives, libraries, etc. Specifically, has researching the Chiang Kai-shek pre-1945 area become easier over time? Sure, I'm gonna, um, I'm actually gonna, gonna jump the queue because I'm gonna ask her Howard Spendelow's question first because I see it okay. there in the chat, because it's, it's short. So, um, and Howard, it's good to see you. I haven't seen you in, in a number of years, so thanks for coming. Um, so Chiara Betta um, had been working on a book on Liza Hardoon, and I'm Wait, not- you have to tell, tell people what that question is. So um, Howard wanted to know if there's been an in-depth study of Liza Hardoon. Yes, so sorry about that. Forgot that now everybody's looking at it. So um, Chiara Betta, who's, um, a scholar who's based now in Italy. 
she'd been in Italy, she'd been in Israel. I think she's in Italy. Um, she had been working on a book for some time, but it's but she's been working on it for some time. So um, her dissertation is the is the main source on Liza Hardoon. And there's a couple of anthologies, which if you email me, I'm, I'm happy to point you toward them. In fact, I was thinking about doing something on Liza Hardoon next, so I, but I haven't decided. Um, but she's out there. So definitely um, a, a really fascinating story and rich one to, to, um, to pursue. Rich? Is that a pun, a rich one? <laughs> that too. Um, so, um, and there, I have more to say about Liza Hardoon, but I want to make sure we get to Bryce's um, um, question. So, so Bryce was on, and I want to say maybe it was pronounced Brees, but anyway, I can't remember. So, so I remember Pierre because he he was on the congressional staff delegation that went with John Lowett. Um, so, sure, we compare notes all the time, um, and in fact, there's a great, there had been a great blog which was I've forgotten the name of it. Um, but it's called something like in the archives. Somebody will probably type it in because we use it. Maggie Lewis and people probably looked at it. Um, is that uh, uh, people would go to the archives and they would come back with a report because you would get very different experiences in different places. Um, so in, in Harbin, the, generally speaking, the further north you went, the more conservative and restrictive things got. Um, and so working way up in Harbin, which is in the northeast, it was very difficult to get things. And as you went, worked for the south, things were more open and more accessible, and you could compare those notes. That's unfortunately things have now, everything has become um, much less accessible. So um, I was just having this discussion with someone not long ago, and we're almost at a point where we're, we are at a point where we're having to consider a, a scenario kind of like when I was starting graduate school, so in the early 90s. So the people who trained me had never been to the mainland or only very recently been to the mainland because they weren't, you couldn't go there to do research. They had done all their research in Taiwan uh, or maybe in Hong Kong or in you know, libraries in Europe or in the United States because they couldn't go to the mainland. Um, and that's not the case yet, but it's certainly, it's a risk. I mean, the, obviously because of COVID-19, literally is the case now. Um, but there's risks. On the other hand, um, the Shanghai Municipal Archives just put a whole bunch of documents on uh, online. They digitized a whole bunch of documents. So there's there's some some bright spots, but um, it's it's not a it's not a good trend right now for access of information in, in uh, the PRC. Well, I'm sorry that we had to end on what is at least partially a down note because I. I of the difficulty now in getting more access and doing research, but I'm glad there are a few bright spots. And I just want to thank everyone, apologize to my colleagues because we have run over by two, by the time I've finished three minutes. But I do want to thank Jay very much, both for writing this book, for spending your time with us. Uh, urge all of you before we cut off this to go into the chat and find out where you can get that book. Uh, because I think you'll all enjoy it very much. So, oh, can I can I you, I interrupt yeah. one more time and just to say if you I normally would sign books. So if you if you get a book and you want a signed copy, um, if you send me somehow or other through email, I mean Jan can get it to you. Uh, if you send me your address, I will mail you a book plate. I have a nice Art Deco oh. book plates that I can sign and I will mail them to you. So um, as long as more I don't as long as I don't get more than 150 of them. <laughs> um, uh, I'm happy to do that. So yeah, send me your address and I'll send, I will sign your book, so to speak. That's wonderful. A wonderful way to end. Uh, I hope all of you, I hope more than 150, I hope you use up all of his book plates. So thank you so much, uh, Jay. We've really enjoyed it as we always do with you. And thank you everybody again for joining us. It's a, a great crowd and we're delighted to have you all. Bye -bye. Thank you everyone. 
For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.